0: Welcome to the Particular Good Podcast. I said particular good, not particularly good. It's a name, not a claim. We're back after a long time away. And I am Charles Hughes Huff, and I teach here at St. Bernard School of Theology and Ministry. And I'm joined today by Professor Danny Drain and Professor Heather Hughes Huff, who all three of us teach at St. Bernard School of Theology and Ministry uh, in Rochester, New York. Rochester, New York is in western New York by the Finger Lakes and not in upstate New York, which is a term that only New Yorkers, that is of the city, use for the rest of the state. It's a fun fact about Rochester for today. <laughs> St. Bernard School of Theology and Ministry uh, has a variety of master's programs for people interested in pursuing theology, theological studies, pastoral studies on MDiv and so on. We have campuses in Rochester, Buffalo, Albany, and Allentown, Pennsylvania but all of our courses are offered via Zoom all the time, so you can study with us no matter where you are. Today, we're going to be talking about Flannery O'Connor and specifically her short story, Everything That Rises Must Converge. Flannery O'Connor is a little-known short story writer that most Catholics have never heard of, so we want to introduce her to you today. Just kidding. She's a very well-known uh, uh, short story writer that we are going to discuss. And uh, this particular short story was published in 1961 issue of New World Writing, and it won Flannery O'Connor her second O. Henry Award in 1963. One thing I like about this story is that it is a good illustration of O'Connor as a figure between two councils. Something I'd like to mention today. Flannery O'Connor existed between Vatican I and Vatican II. And sometimes the story we tell of those two councils is that Vatican I was the anti-modernist or anti-modernism council, and Vatican II was the pro-modernity council. But they actually go beyond that, of course, in both cases. And Flannery O'Connor, as someone who exists between these councils, illustrates this uh, very well. This point is Made in a forthcoming book that we'll probably talk about on the podcast when it comes out by Rick Rosengarden of the University of Chicago, who is writing about three women between the councils, Simone Veil, Frida Kahlo, and Vladimir O'Connor. That's fun. Yeah. uh, Styles of Catholicism, he talks about them, three of them. Uh, But the point he's making is that there is a rich and diverse ability to relate to modernity with a Catholic faith. Between these two councils, before the Second Vatican Council, we still have people writing and working with modern concepts and ideas. One of the modern writers that Flannery O'Connor liked a lot was a French philosopher by the name of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. Teilhard uh, was a paleontologist who tried, and a Jesuit, who tried to write about humankind in terms of evolutionary theory. He talked about humanity as on a path to the omega point, which is... God, basically, the God as all in all. His work brought together evolutionary theory and spirituality, and it had, uh, as you might expect from someone writing in the 1920s and so on, both scientific and theological problems. He was censured by the CDF and criticized by scientists. But of course, he is a premier example of an attempt to embrace modernity and its ideas. He was, as a paleontologist, he actually helped discover and, and write about early human. Skeletons and so on, and Christianity. In his intro to Christianity, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger said of Tired's Christology, it must be regarded as an important service of Tired that he rethought those ideas from the angle of the modern view of the world. And in spite of not entirely unobjectionable tendency towards the biological approach, nevertheless, on the whole, grasped them correctly, and in any case, made them accessible once again. Ratzinger also used Tired's concept of the newest sphere. The realm of the consciousness arisen in the development of human thought, to talk about the cosmic significance of the Eucharist in his spirit of the liturgy. So when O'Connor interacts with Teilhard, she reviews his works uh, in several essays and then she titles this essay based on a quote by him as he's talking about the omega point, this merging of consciousness between humanity and God, And he says this, Remain true to yourself, but move ever upward toward greater consciousness and greater love. At the summit, you will find yourselves united with all those who, from every direction, have made the same ascent. For everything that rises must converge. So when O'Connor turns to describing the relationship between a son and a mother, and everything that rises must converge, but also their relationship as two white southerners, Right after desegregation, with the black people they're now encountering on different terms, she is going to be thinking about this convergence, as you can see from the title. And um, so I will just briefly say that the story is headed up by a recent college graduate and aspiring writer named Julian, who lives with his mother in a southern city of some sort or another, His mother attends a weekly exercise session at the local YMCA, but doesn't like to ride the bus by herself after the integration of the city's transportation system. Julian despises his mother for a lot of things, including her racism, snobbery, and anti-intellectualism, but also, it's seemingly her very style and the way she talks and who she is and how she acts and how much she loves him and what she's given up for him and... And on, on the list goes, his disdain for her is quite strong. But he still takes her out of some sort of sense of filial duty. So, one night, the night of the story, they're on the bus, and his mother's just been complaining about the results of the desegregation on the bus, and he wants to teach her a lesson. So, he ends up sitting next to a black man on the bus, and then a black woman, her young son, named Carver, board the bus, and a whole series of things result between these characters which I won't go on and on about, but let's just say that Julian does all he can to archly use the black people that he's around to teach his mother a lesson about not having the right view of black people, while his mother makes a fairly innocent, if misguided, connection with the young black boy named Carver. This results in his mother's being uh, slammed to the ground eventually by the mother of the boy when she offers the boy a penny, And Julian tries to preach to his mom as she's dealing with the aftermath of that assault. All right, anything you would like to add before we dive in? I mean, let me just say, by way of
1: introduction, part of what I love about O'Connor's style, I love because of uh, the kind of theology I study, which which is the work of Hans Urs von Balthasar. Part of his contribution was that it's precisely in the sort of ugliest moment of Christ's mission, namely the crucifixion, that we see... The divine glory and one of the reasons i i'm drawn to reading o'connor and especially in a story like this is that she always uses ugliness or what she calls later the grotesque to make points about beauty and that's both a a smart kind of savvy stylistic move to to wake up the people that she was actually writing for and she talks about that in in several essays Um, but it's also i think appropriate to the christian thing in the modern world is to show um to look at least at the ugliness around us. And she, she goes to great lengths to portray things as uglier than usual, perhaps, uh, in order to, even just by way of, of showing those contrasts, to, to point out where the, the real glory is. So that's uh, that's sort of the lens by which I approached this story once again.
0: She's famous for, she's thinking through the relationship between grace and modernity. What would it look like to have grace show up in a modern setting? And um, A lot of that is grotesque setting. And would people notice it? What form would it take?
2: It's always very violent for her. (laughs) Yeah. I think they're presented as moments that you cannot ignore um, versus the smaller, quieter moments that, you know, we might look for. Mm -hmm. In this case, like, I feel like you brought us almost to the end, but you didn't say this this moment of crisis where the story ends with Julian's mother being— violently rebuffed by some of the black people that they rode the bus with because of her condescension and then having a stroke uh, because she's so upset by this. And it's Julian's mother's crisis. Her looks like she's going to die. We don't know what actually happens, but it's that that brings Julian sort of back to his himself. The whole story, they're sort of patterned with each other. I don't know if you guys... Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's – on reading this again, I was really struck by how uh, Julian is critiquing his mom and then exhibiting all of the failures (laughs) that he hates in her Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, she's so classist. um, She has this corporate vice. She's racist. And meanwhile, he's like totally classist, um, nostalgic about his own – history of grandeur, of, of having had money and power in the past and feeling like he's owed that stuff even while he's critiquing her racism and um, supposedly being for black people rising but then only wanting to talk to like the quote good ones or whatever. So you have this pattern and in the, the very end, he's yelling at her, walking down the street before he realizes that she's had a stroke and he says... From now on, you've got to live in a new world and face a few realities for a change. Buck up. He said it won't kill you, which, you know, it probably will. Mm -hmm. But then at the very end, he's got the new world. He's the one who has to confront um, the very last words of the story are the tide of darkness seemed to sweep him back to her, postponing from moment to moment his entry into the world of guilt and sorrow. That's his new world that he's going to have to live in. Mm Um, recognizing the own his own ways that he's totally
1: failed. Yeah, I love that he uh, he says to his mother earlier on, "If you'll never learn where you are, you can at least learn where I am." Right. But then on, on the very next page, this is how he's uh, this is how O'Connor describes his mental state. She says, "Behind the newspaper, Julian was withdrawing into the inner compartment of his mind, where he spent most of his time." This was a kind of mental bubble in which he established himself when he could not bear to be a part of what was going on around him. But again, that's most of the time, right? From it, he could see out and judge, but in it, he was safe from any kind of penetration from without, which is precisely what he wants his mother to, to experience, right? It was the only place where he felt free of the general idiocy of his fellows. His mother had never entered it, but from it, he could see her with absolute clarity, right? So on the one hand, yeah, I love I love what you talked about these parallels, Heather. That uh, his mother's not sort of in the present world, but he is only in the present as one kind of above it and not really in it, and this like godlike perspective on however, how everyone else should be. And he wants his mother both to to be in the moment, but he also uh, laments how stupid she is, effectively for not <laughs> being able to have that like transcendent perspective on things. Yeah.
2: But Even, yeah, the way that he frames that is like he's safe in this bubble that he's created, but then when he's thinking about her, he thinks, we don't have the same book, so I can't tell you what page, (laughs) but another part, Uh, it says the old lady was clever enough and he thought that if she had started from any of the right premises, more might have been expected of her. She lived according to the laws of her own fantasy world, outside of which he had never seen her set foot. It's like, what? you yeah, that's, that's, that's what that's you do. <laughs> yeah.
0: He's deep in the fantasy world.
2: Completely.
0: In that yeah. bubble that, that you talked about, Danny, he's just like, he, he's seeing everything clearly, but that's only because there's no convergence with anyone around him. He's only reading them as part of his own alienation and yeah. resentment. And I think the
1: irony there is that he's critical of his mother not sort of getting with the times and like being happy about desegregation in principle, or that's the sort of premise he wants her to accept. But he himself has done like absolutely no work to accept any of that.
2: Yeah, yeah it says so weird about, like, he could have gone to a sit-in or a demonstration or something, and then he, like, moved right along. He's met, He's literally not doing anything to yeah. help the cause.
0: Yeah. He's having fantasies about making friends with a black person he can then bring over to his mom's house, or even Maybe better, yeah. yeah, a girlfriend.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but even then, not a fully black girlfriend. It's like there's a sense that she's
0: part right. black. Or he's something. instrumentalizing them. He's instrumentalizing black people in an almost more objectionable way. I mean, they're both objectionable. This is uh, when Flannery O'Connor talked about this. She said, um, It's never very easy to write about a top on topics, but in this case, she could get away with it because she said it pocks on all their houses. <laughs> so, <laughs> well,
2: and you see that something that struck me on this reading again was the mom has a corporate vice uh, very strongly. She's like, clearly very racist and, you know, it's, it's not presented as being okay. No. Um, but she has a lot of personal virtue. Like she counts it as nothing to make sacrifices for her son. She, like, enjoys the struggle. She laughs things off that could bother her that he – that Julian thinks will bother her. Um, and then she's okay with it and that bothers him. <laughs> but then he has – this corporate virtue that like he's got on the right side of history here or whatever. Like he's for desegregation and that is a corporate good. But then personally he's got nothing. He's just like a petty, you know, disappointed cranky. taking his mom to the watch. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> like yeah, even when he's doing something good, he can't enjoy it. He can't like let go of his pettiness. So yeah, there's there's no it's this beautiful picture of how like corporate virtue or having the right views, which is, you know, something I feel like we all talk about a lot these days, like virtue signaling and mm-hmm. and sort of like believing the right things isn't going to do it for you. And that even people w- we can all objectively say like believe the wrong things aren't 100% defined and limited by that, that, you know, the the weeds of of sin grow amongst the wheat of like the good in each person. And we're not the ones who get to decide who's in and who's out because it's all quite a mess.
1: That's well put. Yeah. I'm thinking too, um, one of the sort of virtues of the mother is that, uh, children seem to be exempt from her racism or, or if they're not exempt, she, she at least has a special penchant for black children. They're, they're cuter than white children (laughs) uh, on average. Uh, whereas on the other hand, Julian is, uh, in Sort of in favor of the child carver because he's setting up this this uh, polarity where they've sort of switched mothers and he wants that to, to piss his mom off even more.
0: <laughs> yeah, he, he instrumentalizes everybody in the story. It's all about tri- – his, his whole fantasy drama is about triumphing over his mother where she is – because she innocently inhabits her own views in a way that he can't, right? He, yeah. He, want, he knows what he should think, but then also what he should think works against what his petty self actually is. So he lives with this resentment. He despises her for wishing she had her old house because it's such an innocent desire. But he thinks that if he had it, he would truly appreciate it. So he <laughs> has this, like, alienation that he resents her for not having. She just is very straightforward with her vice and – her bad beliefs and her virtue and whatever else. She's just like inhabits what she thinks.
2: She's described as a child. She's described like a child.
0: And yeah, there is a moment of convergence, I think, between her and the child. I think her manners, where she's giving the child a, a penny, come from a different era and are benevolent patriarchy and condescending. And the Carver's mother is right to be offended by that manners, which are out of time and out of place and signal... Uh, an old relationship that no longer exists, They're equals. But when she's having fun with the child, there seems to be something that actually is converging there between them. Like they're, they're, they're having a moment that's not just about all the tropes. Is that fair or is that just, is that overreading that? Is she still being as condescending in that moment and ignoring the, the clear wishes of the mother? She's doing that too.
2: I don't know. I think you know, he's having a good time too. Like he's initiating all of that interaction.
0: Yeah, I think the
1: innocence is the, is the clear through line there. I mean, she she simply does not see her action as as condescension. I mean, it's at least, you know, inculpable or whatever. I I think it, what's interesting too is that um you know, I'm trying to answer for myself why does Julian ultimately think he's better than his mother, which I think is, is is the case here. And precisely because every time he characterizes her negatively, it's associated with childhood, with innocence. I mean, the very first page uh, of mine, he says, everything that gave her pleasure was small and depressed him. And it, it seems to me that I, the dynamic might be that that he thinks he's an adult and like adults simply move beyond all the childish stuff, Mm -hmm. which includes, you know, taking on sophisticated premises, being able to judge those outside of you with, with supreme clarity from a sort of perspective from nowhere kind of thing. And so something like a a loving condescension, even if it's misplaced is absolutely infuriating. And, and that's, I mean, Julian sees that as the moment where he can finally, you know, he dreads, he knows she's going to do that. Right. Which tells you that that he understands in some sense the the logic of of childhood there, which is like a you know, you just gratuitously give to children. That's what you do. So he understands that, but he hates it. And I'm trying to figure out kind of what's at the heart of of hating gratuity where it exists. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. He says Julian thought he could have stood his lot better if she had been selfish, if she had been an old hag <laughs> who right. drank and screamed at him. I think part of that is self-hatred, right? Like mm-hmm. he sees her making only sacrifices for him that he allows because she got us into this mess to begin with but ultimately he sees that she finds joy in her difficulty and does love him and he can't have like he doesn't have any of those feelings that's how i read it that it's just like it's spite
1: yeah yeah it's also it's a it's a profound boredom too i think you know i'm i'm trying to read this through Also, the perspective of, like, my relationship with my daughter. And and there's a passage here. Oh, man. Julian, I know. This (laughs) this will be depressing for a moment. Julian walked with his hands in his pockets, his head down and thrust forward, and his eyes glazed with the determination to make himself completely numb during the time he would be sacrificed to her pleasure. Every parent has the choice, when you go to the playground, of, like, totally getting into it or just waiting for it to be over. And (laughs) Julian is exactly the kind of guy that, like, does not enjoy seeing his daughter go down the slide. You know, mm. it's exactly yeah. like that, and the sort of innocence of his mother is precisely what infuriates him, which which shows you that he's just like bored with. I, I don't know what would make him happy. I mean, I suppose it's the flip side of this, except for the childhood to be extinguished. But apparently, at the end, that doesn't really make him happy. Certainly not. Yeah. No. no.
2: no. Yeah. Yeah, I like I like that. God, that cuts both ways. I mean, obviously, this is about a parent, and you can see people. You know, who put up with their parents in this way when they're not. He, yeah, he wants somebody who went to college and who has the house that her family used to have, but also the right ideas. And it's just like classism of a new sort, right?
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. He wants her to sort of get with the program, to get with the new ideas, but he also wants his new manners to keep the old ways with him on top still. Right, yes. And she just doesn't want to have new manners, which is also wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's something kind about her old manners in spite of their inappropriateness that he can't stand, partly just because they're their old manners. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's he says, um, oh, I thought I found it. He's somewhere, he says, culture is in the mind.
1: Oh, yeah.
2: And yeah. she says, no, it's in the heart. Right,
1: right, right, right. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, And there, yeah, in that scenario, despite her being wrong, ultimately, about, like, everything, <laughs> she's right in the sense that she's, what is it, she's like, nobody, he's like, nobody cares who you are, and she says that I do. Like, it matters mm-hmm. to her. Mm-hmm. Her own integrity is important, and I think there's something really good about that, despite it being sort of misplaced.
1: Yep. On this on this culture line, what do you what do you make of this? It gave him a certain satisfaction to see injustice in daily operation. It confirmed his view that, with a few exceptions, there was no one worth knowing within a radius of three hundred miles. I mean, I'm thinking <laughs> in particular, Heather, of what you just said about um, he just wants to be on top of the system. Like, this is a person who's who's uh, built up by misery. You know, it's he's got a sick sense of like. Loving to go on the bus with his mother to see her miserable so that he knows, like, I am the best person around.
2: My views are better.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But yeah, that's so funny because it's exactly the same thing. She's like, oh no, the buses are desegregated now. Like, this is terrible. And he's like, there's no one, it's worse. There's no one good within 300 miles. <laughs> <laughs> that's the black people too. Like,
1: <laughs> Yeah, he's. I mean, he effectively says, Mom, you don't, you know, like anyone in front of you just based on their skin color. And and then he says, interiorly, as it were, uh, and I don't like anyone around me based on their (laughs) ideas. And no one's even close with a few exceptions.
0: What do you think about this ending? Why is he so... So we have a classic violent ending where the Carver's mother hits Julian's mother in the head with a purse. And then... He has this interaction with his mom as he's helping her up and she's booking it back home without taking the bus where he's going to preach at her right, and tell her how she ought to interpret what just happened to her and um, sort of ignoring the fact that she is exhibiting lots of signs that she's unwell, right? that she's very upset or unwell, she's muttering. She's just saying single word responses, home, home, she keeps saying. Tell grandpa to come get me, tell Caroline to come get me. So eventually then she, he finally realizes it. um, he says, stunned, he let her go and she lurched forward again, walking as if one leg were shorter than the other, a tide of darkness seemed to be sweeping her from him. And he has this sudden and new reaction. Mother, he cried, darling, sweetheart, wait. Crumpling, she fell to the pavement. He dashed forward and fell at her side, crying, Mama, Mama. So what is that about? This reminds me of like the sudden change of diction and um, entirely new kind of conversation that happens in uh, A Good Man is Hard to Find when the misfit starts killing people and the grandma starts speaking in just a totally different way than she's ever spoken before.
2: Yeah.
0: Here, that's what's happening here. He's responding to a totally new situation. He's broken through all the things, all the fantasies, and he's now confronting reality in a way he hasn't in a long time. But why is this the reaction? Why mother, darling, sweetheart, mama, mama?
2: I think it's the same sort of uh, avenue of grace. Like if his mom could have had a stroke every day, he could have been a good person.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's
2: like... Cuts through all of his pettiness and gets to something that is also in there. Even in his own loathing of her for being good, he's recognizing something good in her. Um, yeah. And there is familial love despite all of their difficulties with each other. Yeah. Um, he still has taken her to the why. And yeah, that's how I view this is just this avenue of grace to find the love that is there and to connect to something larger than himself.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. I mean, he's, he makes fun of her the whole time for being afraid of the new world and and uh, he's taking a secret pleasure at the fact that she's so afraid that he has to to go with her. You know, he, he laments and uh, that she's afraid of the new world, but then the new world actually hits her. He <laughs> physically. realizes she was in danger and that matters to him. I mean, I think it breaks through that that sort of, false adulthood uh kind of thing you realize it's like it's not that the world changed and my mom had to catch up it's also that my mom's a person who uh failed to grow and that puts her at risk and that puts me at risk because i'm actually like related to my mom in a way that suddenly matters to me but it's it takes violence to break through that Hmm. that sort of uh premise construction that kept him at a distance from her
2: Yeah. yeah
1: and so he devolves to the vocabulary of a child that, that sort of innocence
2: Yeah, I like that parallel I didn't really think about that mm-hmm. yelling mama and he's literally like yelling for help
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah
2: yeah. it's sad
1: yeah I'm thinking too I mean uh, kind of what's behind my thought there I was rereading uh, Flannery's essay The Grotesque in Southern Fiction it's got a couple of her, her kind of famous lines it's where she says that uh, the prophet is a realist of distances but but she says this in particular about Southern writers using, uh, using violent figures, using freaks. Um, she says, whenever I'm asked why Southern writers particularly have a penchant for writing about freaks, I say it is because we're still able to recognize one. To be able to recognize a freak, you have to have some conception of the whole man. And in the South, the general conception of man is still in the main theological. That's a large statement, and it's dangerous to make it so on and so forth. But approaching the subject from the standpoint of the writer, I think it's safe to say that while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it's most certainly Christ-haunted, famous phrase from her. The Southerner who isn't convinced of it is very much afraid that he may have been formed in the image and likeness of God. <laughs> <laughs> and I think here, um, if I wanted to uh, ascribe to Julian's attitude as sort of fear, it's like the fear that he actually does depend on his mother who's faulty in all these sorts of ways. And that's finally what, what breaks through when she gets hurt. Yeah, he's sort of mother-haunted. Hmm. Yeah, she says ghosts can be very fierce and instructive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, I, I mean, I, I'll confess to being a little confused by the ending, though, too. And this is where I'm just not as, as sophisticated as a reader. The very last sentence, Tide of Darkness seemed to sweep him back to her, postponing from moment to moment his entry into the world of guilt and sorrow. I mean, on the one hand, it seems like we're, we're making the case that this wakes him up, but this ending is not actually super positive if that's what we thought was happening. It's no. keeping him from realizing what's happening. Like he's he's gonna see it as an instance of of racism or something, like reverse race. You know, I wonder if that's what's implied here, that, that Julian totally gets the wrong message. That's not at all even a, a an ending that would push him towards conversion. Like, is that, do you think that's what's intended here? Because I, I frankly don't understand.
2: I don't see it as that negative. And it's part mm-hmm. of an earlier tide, I guess, where when she falls, the darkness, where is it?
0: What so did that, you? Um, a tide of darkness seemed to be sweeping her from him. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it's sort of pulling him back to her before time can go on. Okay. So I don't, I don't see that as him being stuck permanently or, like, moving in a particular direction, but more just as, like, the wave of this experience um, sort of cresting and falling.
1: I guess that's Flannery's signature style is to kind of leave you in that that moment. Yeah. Of like, right when the conversion starts.
0: Right. Right here is horror. This is just... Yeah. It's horror. And the horror is, like, wakes him up enough to say, you know, to scream for his help, to ask... Mm-hmm. To, realize he loves his mother but the tide of darkness which is both pulling her from him and bringing him to her well that's exactly what's happening right because she's gone and he's with her Hmm. for the first time Hmm. which is what's 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 is so darkly horrifying about it
2: right and how impermanent that is actually like the opposite almost that Is this this will be over any moment? He doesn't probably want this wave to end in a way,
0: right? Because he has this this wave of horror and tenderness combined that like makes her present to him in a way that he'll very soon not be able to ever capture again. Yeah, because I think she's dead. Yeah, it seems that way. Yeah,
2: yeah, but her endings are not. Usually, very satisfying (laughs) (laughs) or positive, (laughs) even when open to positive interpretation. Like it's good that he had this crisis and that he recognized these things, and you know, love strikes through. But like, what's he gonna do? It's not. It's not clear or
1: light. You know, I just noticed another parallel. I was looking back to that that paragraph I had read about his sort of uh, interior fortress. Mm.
0: I was wondering about that very passage. Yeah. His
1: mother had never entered it, but from it, he could see her with absolute clarity. So there's that, that idea that he sees super clearly from his, his mental palace or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then the very end, the lights drifted farther away. The mm-hmm. idea is that um, he thought he could see clearly, but now precisely where there's darkness, he like, I don't know. I'm trying to read it a little too Christologically maybe, but precisely the glory of the Lord is present <laughs> in the darkness of the cross. But I think there might be something of that here. Yeah, you're helping me see that.
0: Yeah, his uh, his fake clarity is dissolving into real yeah. unclarity.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Which is like, he had a structure that was a structure of fantasy and resentment, but it was a structure. And now that's dissolving into a sort of chaotic non-fantasy.
2: Yeah, like encounter with reality.
0: Yeah, something's actually happening to him. Yeah. He's not unaffected by it. Yeah.
2: Sounds very painful. <laughs>
0: This little interaction, the beginning the story, where he decides to break her spirit, <laughs> <He's> <laughs> so mean. <laughs> As they're walking to the bus, um, this is when what he's dragging he- on the hat, right? Oh, he yeah. takes his tie off. Yeah, but he takes his tie off. So he's <laughs> upset about the hat. It's hideous. Um, well, why must you do this to me? <laughs> I think this writing is very humorous. Yeah. Um, he looked at her bleakly. She was holding herself very erect under the preposterous hat, wearing it like a banner of her imaginary dignity. There <laughs> was in him an evil urge to break her spirit. He suddenly unloosed his tie and pulled it off and put it in his pocket. So this was like this real petty, um, but directly just trying to assault her. He, he doesn't. He, she's standing under the preposterous hat, she doesn't know that she's preposterous. She's very dignified, and he wants to just take her down a notch. And um, and so she stiffens up even further and says, "Why would you? Why must you look like that when you take me to town?" She said, "Why must you deliberately embarrass me?" But then after this, he roll, he, rolling his eyes upward, he put his tie back on, restored to my class. He muttered, <laughs> and that leads to this. Um, hissing statement. He thrust his face towards her and hissed. True culture is in the mind. The mind, he said, and tapped his head. The mind. (laughs) It's in the heart, she said, and it's in how you do things, and how you do things is because of who you are. And there you have it. That's like, um, I tell you what, as a Southern person with a grandmother, this is like (laughs) absolutely a conversation I've had with my own grandmother. Yeah. (laughs) Where her dignity and her stubbornness about certain truths of life I wanted to make her see weren't actually right or smart. Like like
2: Manners aren't
0: morals. Right. Manners aren't morals. And even and petty little intellectual stuff. Like I used to have this big fight with my grandmother over was it? Mishner, James Mishner. <laughs> 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 writes these, you know, like historical books and um i think they're bad (laughs) she thinks he's the best writer ever that shakespeare is bad uh, (laughs) what she's really anti shakespeare my grandmother that's weird i don't really know why but anyway as a younger man i would sometimes get real hot at my grandmother over mishner versus shakespeare she would get real hot at me
2: (laughs) i love this it's so funny
0: (laughs) (laughs) she's a strong woman she is. She's 96 years old. And if you walk into her room, she's also had a stroke. Um, but if you walk into her room at the nursing home, she will say, Hello, my name is Evelyn Meredith, and I'm a Baptist and a Republican. <laughs>
2: <laughs> she knows who she is.
0: She knows who, she is, is. who she, is. she is.
1: And it's important that you know who she is.
2: Right. I guess yeah.
1: That's...
0: yeah. This was the big difference when uh, O'Connor put out her short story, um, uh, I mean, is hard to find, that, many Northern folks read it and found the grandmother to be completely horrifying. Mm -hmm. And then some of the young people in the South who read it didn't find her in the classrooms. They didn't find her um, horrifying because they all had grandmothers and aunts who were very much like her. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I think
2: that's also an important thing to remember about the grotesque in O'Connor's fiction is some of it we just read purely as descriptive. grotesque. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> just the world you live in. She yeah.
1: says Northerners think any depiction of a Southerner is grotesque until it actually is grotesque. Then they think it's
0: realistic. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Funny. But this is like this is a real clear way that that young people are. Yeah, I've got the better view. Um, And so all of your thing you've been trying to hold with dignity in front of me, this whole is like wrong and I'm going to take you down a notch.
2: Yeah, Um, I I love the parallels here because it is. It's like, okay, so behaving the right way means you're good and then it's believing the right things means you're good and they're all just full of it.
0: Yeah.
1: So Charles, can you speak then to – uh, the encounter between the mothers when they're wearing the same hat. I mean, yeah. it's not just Julian's mom that's clearly getting upset about it. Like what's <laughs> what's the dynamic there with the fact that they're they're both trying to express their individuality in exactly the same way? Is that what what's kind of an
0: affront about it, or how how realistic is that? Well, let's go there because I I'm not really clear. I think Julian expected his mother to be upset about the hat.
2: As she was initially.
0: Well, and then he, he describes the
1: um, he describes Carver's mother as sort of uh, I'm remembering volcanic imagery.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Something that really stood out to me this time was also uh, color. What she does with color: red. Mm-hmm. Carver's red mother has book. a red pocketbook yeah. and is used literally as a weapon. Um, Julian's mother's face gets very red when she's enraged or upset. The blue of her eyes changes becomes bruised when she's harmed and is light blue mm-hmm. when she's innocent and childlike. There's a lot of color stuff going on which is interesting
1: the blue in them seem to have turned a bruised purple and the hats purple hmm. do, I mean I'm not great with color imagery I don't know, do maybe you think this that that too much it seems like purple would be the converging color between red and blue here right mm-hmm. is that is that how colors work what's kind of color we have no, I like remember, that but it's probably something there well they're both wearing a purple hat
0: yeah well
1: yeah that's I
0: like that the, the blue in them seems to turn turned Blue's purple. He's happy, uh, right? The vision of the two hats identical broke upon him with the radiance of a brilliant sunrise. And <laughs> it is fun that, like, she gives the same exact description of both hats. Um, <laughs>
2: uncommented upon. Uncommented
0: upon. Yeah. And it takes a few paragraphs for Julian to even realize that the same hat.
2: Yeah.
0: And then you know, his grin hardened until it said to her, as plainly as if you were saying aloud, your punishment exactly fits your pettiness, which will come to haunt him and this should teach you a permanent lesson. So his mom then looks at the woman. She seemed unable to bear looking at him and to find a woman preferable. The woman's rumbling like a volcano, but I'm not really sure if that has to do with the hat or not. And then um, she kept her eyes on the woman and an amused smile came over her face as if the woman were a monkey that had stolen her hat.
1: Yeah, either Carver's mother is getting upset about the hat or getting upset that Carver is looking at Julian's mom.
2: Well, and she seemed cranky before she even, like, either of these were a possibility.
0: Yeah, I I don't know. It's also, the the perspective here is interesting because it's an omniscient narrator but goes into the consciousness of Julian but not of his mom. Mm -hmm. So it's not always clear to me, unless she's speaking, well, she speaks a lot of overt racism, but when he's watching his mother look at this woman and smile slightly – uh, with an amused smile, as if the woman wore a monkey that has stolen her hat. That's a very racist um, depiction. Mm-hmm. Is that what his mom is feeling, or is that how Julian is taking it? His mother doesn't seem very phased by this in a long-term way.
2: You watch the journey that she goes on, because she is stricken when this woman comes on. Yeah, yeah. Um, He saw his mother's face change as the woman settled herself next to him, and he realized with satisfaction that this was more objectionable to her than it was to him. Her face seemed almost gray, and there was a look of dull recognition in her eyes, as if suddenly she had sickened at some awful confrontation. Hmm. And then he loved it, uh, especially after he realized. And then in her processing, she decides that it's funny. Yeah. um, And he hates that. So it's... Hmm. It's like her better nature takes over in a way, even though, yeah, I think I think it is probably condescension that makes her think it's humorous,
0: right? I don't mean to be rescuing her from her racism. She's definitely racist. Oh no, I I I don't either (laughs) in in
2: saying that it's better that she be amused by this than horrified. Mm -hmm. But it is better to be amused than horrified, right? Even in condescension, whatever. We don't need to decide
1: that. Well, it's interesting that Julian's mother. she speaks again to the woman with the protruding teeth, which is just a great, descriptor <laughs> of a woman. But she she says, "Isn't isn't he cute?" With respect to Carver, so yeah. she I think she is in her better nature there, just like wanting to talk about the cute little kid. The woman responds without without emotion, without conviction. But then it's it's just after that that Carver's mother snatches him away, quote, as if she were snatching him from contagion.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I mean, I wonder if that uh, description lets us see that. Julian's mother is behaving rather obviously condescendingly and Carver's mother picks up on that immediately or she can sense that they're being, you know, instrumentalized or, or whatever.
0: Yep. I the, think that's fair. She didn't feel outraged. And so this, the lesson didn't work from Julian's perspective because she didn't get upset. But her old school manners, her racism, her benevolent racism still comes out. This, um, it was the smile she used when she was being particularly gracious to an inferior. And then um, Julian could feel the rage in her, Carver's mother, at having no weapon like his mother's smile. So there's still like this, his mother's sort of innocent holding on to the old a relationship the old manners the old ways what we would call a microaggression now <laughs> is is very instrumentalizing and from the Carver's mom does feel like a a real insult in a way that um oh and it was a real insult and makes her feel powerless
1: i wonder if that's because i mean i think i think benevolent forms of sinfulness are in some sense worse because they're harder to change they require Almost like a total reconditioning to learn how to not. I, I'm thinking, you know, particularly today's culture of, of like training against microaggressions requires a whole new vocabulary, a whole new language, a whole new culture. And I mm-hmm. think, I mean, that's probably precisely what upsets uh, Carver's mother is that she sees in Julian's mom the old culture that can only die. Like there's no changing certain people. Yeah. I think that's what's bad about it. Yeah. Maybe mm-hmm. the
2: amusement is Because
1: worse. it's
0: benevolent. Yeah. Maybe yeah. amusement is worse. Yeah. yeah.
1: I learned a lesson.
0: It's like a. That's why she's happy to punch her.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Nothing else you can
0: do. You can't teach her. You can't teach her. Yeah. And it's like the when someone's always going to take that affect towards you of like, oh, you are. I'm going to. You're so beneath me. I can't even be annoyed by you. Yeah. Yeah. Then you do feel powerless. You feel you're, you're voiceless at that point.
1: You know, it's. It's interesting that Julian's impassioned speech to his mother, like right after she gets hit, you know, that was the whole colored race, which will no longer take your condescending pennies. I, I don't think he's wrong about that. I mean, I think in some sense Carver's mom is like fighting back for everybody in that sense. And that's mm-hmm. that's like that is the the violence that needs to happen to, to change a, a benighted or a benevolent racism. So it's funny that he, he sort of sees that clearly, but he's like happy that she's. Uh, and then, then he he says that was your black double. That's uh, which is, uh, I mean, just another racist move on, on his part. Actually, yeah. that mm-hmm. that woman's just as small as Julian's mom in his eyes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. So I like the way that she describes her violence. <laughs> that she said the huge minute, huge woman turned and for. A moment stood, her shoulders lifted and her face frozen with frustrated rage, and stared at Julian's mother. Then, all at once, she seemed to explode like a piece of machinery that had been given one ounce of pressure too much. So, yeah, I think that it is, there's a sort of corporate response going on that she she's, gets this all the time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, I mean, just to speak the obvious, that's the convergence, <laughs> the actual connection. <laughs> <laughs> the the flesh to flesh. That's yeah. Convergence right there. <laughs> yeah. That's the rising and converging. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, uh, this is uh, a beautiful story. Um, I feel it's hard to read Flannery O'Connor without feeling, uh, without seeing in myself the things she's making horrible in someone else, which I do, you know, um, both ends. Like I see parts of uh, the, um, my inattentiveness to other people, um, like, um, and then my sometime turning attentiveness towards other people not really as attentiveness, but as a as tropiness, as using them as an instrument for my own rhetorical point, uh, which is easy to do um, without ever encountering such people. You know? So for me, mm-hmm. that's um, more true with like the poor. I might use that that kind of thinking. I, w- I want to care about the poor. I think I do care about the poor, but I don't spend a lot of time out helping people in homeless shelters or mm-hmm. hospitals or... It's a, a purely political, theological stance for me, and that uh, it's not wrong to have ideas and thoughts about how things should go, and have corporate, to try to have corporate virtue. But um, too easily, you can be when you lose touch with reality, you can just be a, you can be sort of in your own little fantasy where what you think reflects well upon you, instead of actually making any difference in the world or to any real person.
2: Yeah, requiring you to do the work or deal with
1: actual people. Right. And presumably if those poor people were also theologically
0: heterodox, (laughs) they wouldn't care as much. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Also probably should call my grandmother and apologize. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Any other thoughts before we conclude? This has been great. Thank you both Heather and Danny for coming on. Thank you. We're going to be coming out folks with a podcast every other week, twice a month. Where we, Danny, Heather, and I talk about various things. We're going to keep talking about short stories and uh, Catholic literature and theology. In the next few weeks, we may have a guest on occasionally, from time to time. Hope you enjoy it. Thank, Thank you very so much. much. Thanks, Heather. Thank you. Thanks, Danny. Thank you. You can join us in two weeks for a discussion of Alice Munro's short story "Bardon Bus." Alice Munro. I don't know if many people know this. Sometimes has referred to herself as the Flannery O'Connor of Canada, <laughs> which is quite funny. Actually, she calls herself. She has referred to herself that that way before. So, uh, we want to talk about the influence of Flannery O'Connor and Alice Munro, who, if you don't know her, is a Nobel Prize in Literature recipient for her short stories. She has many, many books of short stories. So, I'd say one of the two of the best. Short story writers of the 20th century, Flannery O'Connor and Alice Monroe. We're going to talk about Flannery's influence on Alice and read Barton Bus, one of her very famous short stories. So, if you want to read Barton Bus ahead of that episode, feel free. And of course, if you have any questions about St. Bernard School of Theology and History, go to our website where we have our degrees lined out and you can sign up for classes, particularly with Professor Danny Terrain. Jim <laughs> of a man.
1: <laughs> That's the perfect outcome. Yeah.
0: Good. <laughs>
1: Good, <laughs> <laughs>